<sighs> okay, Mr. Morellian? I am so ready. Prophet, preacher, servant, leader, rector, reverend, deacon, elder, what the hell is a pastor? So, so the Silmarillion. Joe, you finished the Silmarillion. Tell me about the Silmarillion. What did you like about it? What did you dislike about it? Since there's nothing to dislike, I expect that to be a much shorter part. But what did you well, – tell me about your thoughts. Uh, so I have to start with the saga of me trying to read the Silmarillion. Sure. That um, I read The Hobbit in like third grade. I read Lord of the Rings in middle school. I thought I'm on the trajectory to read the Silmarillion in high school. I was not. I tried it multiple times and I could not keep the name straight and there was not enough. Um, there's plenty of plot. There's no character development. And I, that's how I found out that I like character based stories. Uh, and then, so I tried to read it and then I went through a phase where I'm like, I don't need to read that stuff. And then, um, as a way of keeping up with each other, my friend group in Scotland decided to have a virtual reading group to read the Silmarillion. We're on chapter eight and we've been doing this for two years, uh, cause schedules are hard across the ocean. But I finally got it on audiobook and was like, I'm just going to listen to it. And if I listen to it, it will get in my head and we'll be good. And so I did, um. I love all of the kind of creation stuff at the beginning. Mm -hmm. I love the music and, and how all of the music is going to get formed together into even like a greater majesty. Um, I like that there's co-creation along with Iluvatar. I like that, like there's just a whole lot of stuff that I'm like, yes, this is, there's like good parts of Tolkien's Catholicism coming through this, but not, it's not like a repeat of Genesis Friends. It's like a reworking of, it's a whole other myth. Um, and I like, like I like hearing the origins of all the different elf groups. Um, I like, uh, hearing about Feanor and how he ruins literally everything. Yep. Um, I like getting the backstories of a lot of my favorite people. Uh, but I do have to be honest that in the middle there, there's just a bunch of wars against a bunch of different elves who are angry. And then I forget who is the Eldar and who is the Valar and, and things oh. like that. I know, I'm awful. And so there's a big chunk in the middle where I was like, can I just get to Baron and Luthien? Because I hear that's a good part. <laughs> so, did, did you like Baron and Luthien? I did. Um, so for a while there, I was listening to it as I was like cleaning the house or like I had it on as I was getting ready for bed. And so I heard Baron and Luthien in like a couple different chunks. But it's, a, it's just like, it's a good little story. You understand why it gets a shout out in Lord of the Rings because it gets your heart. Yeah, oh yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. I think it's uh it's strong. I I, I like that. I like uh, Turin Turabar a, a lot. Yeah. It's so dramatic and it's you know, it's he he just just fails at every every step of the way and his whole life comes crashing down. He marries his sister. The sister kills herself. He kills himself. It's all great. Yep. 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 That's a um what that's one of those things that occurs in in old stories where people are marrying their siblings and I hate it and I, I hate it every time it occurs and it makes me angry on my insides and so I just like every time that happens I'm like please everybody fail everybody die because that's how the story always ends everybody fail everybody die because I just oh 
It's right. like the story of Tamar in the Bible. I'm like, well, you know what? The, the guy deserves to be beheaded at the end. Agreed. Agreed. What, what I think is so interesting about Silmarillion, I am, of course, a giant nerd. I'm a big Tolkien nerd. And, mm-hmm. and uh, not, not like um, some of the big Harry Potter nerds that like think everything that J.K. Rowling does is like gold when like that's most certainly not true. Like right. Tolkien definitely had plenty of blind spots. You know, I'm, I'm not here to defend the man, you know, for, for his implicit racism in, in his work and, and different things like that. But um, one of the things that I'm, I'm always so really kind of impressed by with Tolkien, and this is particularly true as I, as I also recently listened to the Silmarillion on audiobook last year, again and uh uh read the hobbit to adrea and, and reading lord of the rings to adrea and, and stuff like that is um his his strong sense of how stories are supposed to work yes i think is really important to me um and and you see that really coming into play in in how the silmarillion fits into the rest of the lord of the rings mm-hmm. and so like the Silmarillion as like this mythology of his mythology, you know, it becomes uh, kind of like the, the archetypal stories of what the characters of like the Lord of the Rings are doing. And so it, um, what I, here's what I mean by that. Like when in the fall of Gondolin, mm-hmm. when, uh, when Gothmog Lord of Belrogs faces, uh, you know, they, the elf in Gondolin, and it's like this big fight. Like it's supposed to be like the the mythological story that Gandalf versus the Belrog in Fellowship of the Ring, uh, like pays homage to. Right. Right. It's it's a like that's that's how that's would be how the the characters of Lord of the Rings would understand what Gandalf is doing. Right. You know, because they would know that history. They or at least, you know, the elves would or Aragorn might or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so Baron and Luthien is another great example. Aragorn and Arwen are like a mini Baron and Luthien. Right. Baron and Luthien is clearly the bigger and the more majestic story. And Aragorn and Arwen understand their story and their love uh, within the context of the their history and their mythology which and the reason why i love that is that's just what human beings do exactly that that's what i think is so really kind of profound about what tolkien does is that uh in a way that's very different than a lot of contemporary like mythology that we tell like like um uh even star wars fails to do this and when even when it's at its best you know like even the star wars i really like uh everything is sort of bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. right so you start with one thing and then the next story you have to tell has to be bigger it can't it, it has to has to trump it whereas in in tolkien tolkien understands is that that's not really how it works like we actually start with bigger stories that may or may not have happened and mm-hmm. then we understand our day-to-day life in light of those stories. Um, yeah, which is how how we 
create meaning making systems as people, I think. And it, it fits in so well with the creation story at the beginning where a theme is sung and everybody picks up the theme and sings it in different ways. And those ways all interweave together in a lot of beautiful ways. And of course, there's going to be repeats in that and there's going to be reestablishments of the theme. And but none of them are ever going to be as great as the original theme. They're all variations on the original theme. And when you try to create something that is separate from the theme, what you're creating is discord and disharmony that is going to clash with the rest of the theme throughout the rest of the, like it's just, it's a metaphor that really pays off over time. And not that I'm saying that uh, Tolkien is doing a like make Middle Earth great again thing by having these characters harken back to these larger, bigger stories, but that Tolkien is noticing that there are um, facets of existence that are always there. And since they are always there, they're always going to be repeating in these different themes in different ways. And that you can interact with the world more wisely if you know what the themes are. Right, right. Um, I like that, what you said there, uh, at, particularly at the end, Joe, a lot. Like Tolkien, the, the characters of Tolkien's world who are the wisest or who uh, are um, maybe the most morally and ethically sound are also those who know their stories well, mm-hmm. you know, who, who know their history well and, and, who, and who kind of know who they are and, and where they fit in, not, not like in terms of like their social standing, like it's not, Tolkien's not really a, a person like that, like where it's like, mm-hmm. this is your place in the order, like that's not really how it works. But like, but like, knows where they fit in in the the their story and in the entire story that is being told, and so Sam Gamgee is wise, uh, precisely because Sam Gamgee or Gandalf is wise because Gandalf knows um, the stories of of Middle Earth and knows where he fits in them. Elrond is wise because Elrond looks back to. Uh, the times where where men, you know, where human beings have failed, and and knows how they can can fail and what their weaknesses are, and and then kind of plans accordingly, and kind of sees Aragorn in light of all of that. You know, Aragorn right. can be seen in light of a seal door, of right. who, who has failed, or Aragorn could be seen in light of. Um, some of his other uh, um, uh, ancestors in the Silmarillion, like the faithful humans, right? You know, right. you know, and uh, B or the the uh, old or or um, uh, Baron, you know, things like that. Like he he could be seen as a Sealdor, but Aragorn doesn't see himself as a Sealdor. You know, he sees himself as Baron. You right. know, who who is who's faithful. I think that's cool. Like the the reason why I think that's cool is just that it's sometimes particularly like particularly in a post um Game of Thrones era hmm. Tolkien is seen as not human enough. Like hmm. it's all it's not it's not realistic enough. It's not too It's not uh, real politic enough. Yeah, you know what I mean? But but like I actually find it to be the opposite. Like I actually think that Tolkien uh really gets at what it means to be human in a very different way. Um, and, and how we as human beings create ethical systems and 
meaning making, as you say, and, and, and understand things like morality and justice and goodness and, and stuff like that. Um, yeah, Tolkien's not postmodern, but, but that's not really what he's working with, you know, he's, uh, and, and so I, I, reading the Silmarillion always reminds me of that. You know, it always brings me back to that, like, wow, that's, uh, that's, that's different. Do you have a favorite part of the Silmarillion? Oh, goodness. Um, I really don't. Every time they talk about, um, the trees, and the lights from the trees and, and how like the trees get preserved over the course of time and how the trees are just this remembrance that like goodness exists. And like the, the symbol of the trees that grow up in uh, the place where the fancy people are at the beginning. Numenor. Numenor. That was going to be my first guess, but I didn't want to say it wrong. Um, yeah. Just that, it, that there's this piece of, um, eternal beauty and light that gets preserved throughout all of the all of the ups and downs of the of the saga that's like anytime the trees are mentioned i'm like oh hey friends i'm excited to have you here um what was the other thing that i was going to add in with that Nope, nope. I there because because I listened to it on audiobook and uh because it's so then it's just story after story after story. I'm gonna have to listen to it again and read it to really like kind of dig into it. So I now just kind of know the arc of it and know how things end. Sure. Um, but I, I really love the repeating symmetry from um from the original creation story and that kind of um first age of things and and, and I love how the, the world is remade as it needs to be um, mm-hmm. or as, as like each theme calls for it to be. The, I, there's, there's just kind of a beauty in the structure of it. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, you, I really like the fact that, um, that humans, the, the, that death for humans is a gift. Yes. A curse, yeah, and that um, that we when we are insecure and when we are afraid, we make it into a curse. But it was never intended to be that. Um, I found that I, I always find this kind of like meditations on mortality to be really uh, profound, and that like there's there are often choices even amongst the the kind of set nature of this is the theme and this is how the theme is going to be expounded. Um, There are like Elrond and his brother get to choose whether they want to be considered elves or mortals. And one chooses to be an elf and the other one chooses to be a really long living human. Um, And, and to start like all of the lines of Kings and things like that. Um, And, and with like with Aragorn, he gets to choose which archetype he's going to follow and that, that these archetypes are there, uh, I think helps like confirm and guide people in routes of, well, you know, that like wicked actions will lead to wickedness in your life. Um, and you know, that good actions will lead to goodness. And, and I, I like the, um, the like choose now this day who you will serve death or life kind of thing that you each day you have the choice of what archetype you're going to follow what choices you're going to make and you have the ability to choose good you are not forced to choose evil 
And I think that comes up, even though there are many people who their fate ends up leading them into evil, no one is forced into it. Right. Tolkien's, uh, Tolkien's Catholicism, the best of Tolkien's Catholicism, I think, shines through, you know, in, in, in his work, in the Silmarillion and in Lord of the Rings, where he's actually got a, a very uh, positive view of, of, like, human nature, mm-hmm. um, where, where he believes that humans have the capacity to and often are noble. You know, uh, they often are not. But right. like their their capacity to not be noble doesn't really come from some kind of like inner evil. It's it's always comes from a corruption. Right. You know, it always comes from uh, uh, a fear. Maybe is the first thing, or or uh, not really knowing better. You know, um, Boromir is a great like Boromir in Lord of the Rings. Is obviously Boromir is not in Silmarillion, but Boromir in the book. Um, is presented a little differently than in the film because Boromir in the book is really noble and 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 good and ultimately his problem uh, just boiled down to fear. Right. You know, he was afraid and he succumbed to fear for a moment and then he immediately repented and and you know moved on. That sort of immediate repentance and stuff like that um, is kind of there throughout Tolkien's work. Uh, to the point where even like the story of Turin Turambar and how everything is so tragic, like Turin has all of these opportunities to just repent and just turn back. Um, and it's not because he's, he's evil that he doesn't. It's because of other tragedy or other um, hangups or other frailties that he has. Uh, and I, I just find the vision. Uh, I often talk about Tolkien's moral vision. Um, and, and that's, I think the strongest thing about Tolkien, particularly in the Silmarillion is that Tolkien has a moral vision for what he's going for, you know, and he's casting a picture about the world through the lens of his world that I, I think is really, uh, gorgeous. And I think is really, um, um, uh, thoughtful and beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, and, and I think that we are, we are of the same like academic bent to really appreciate all of the stuff that Tolkien's doing in this, um, probably because we like both were influenced by Tolkien as kids. And so it's just kind of coming full circle. Sure. Um, yeah, I, there's, there's a lot to pick apart in Lord of the Rings. And I, um, I feel like I have always relegated it into this kind of like, it, it is up on a literal pedestal, not a literal pedestal. Let me fix my language. Um, like I have placed it up on- <laughs> You wouldn't put it, you're, you're putting it on a literal pedestal? A literal pedestal. Uh, it's in no, my house right now. <laughs> <laughs> I have it, it's displayed. It is actually at my at my parents' house. It is on, um, it's got that prime viewing space on the shelf. It's like right at eye level and it's in the most accessible place. <laughs> so it is like in this really honored place on my bookshelf. Uh, at my parents' house. I actually don't have any copies with me now. Um, yeah, it's, um, I have not taken it as something that I have been allowed to pick apart and analyze and, and kind of see. But um, in reading the Silmarillion, listening to Silmarillion, I feel like, oh, like I can, I can, I'm allowed to critique this and I'm allowed to think about this. And I think the reason is that it um, comes across in places 
like the stories of the patriarchs and matriarchs in Genesis or things like that, or like the judges, where like I have learned an analytical sense for these biblical stories. And now I find myself better able to analyze the stories that are in the Cimmerillion and then what's echoed in Lord of the Rings. And right, right. That's been good. Yeah, it's been cool. Well, I, good. I'm, oh, I'll keep going. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I was going to say a Richard Feynman quote, but that would take more explaining. So it's not. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> Well, I am glad that we could chat about this. I was excited that you you got through it. Adrea did not like the Silmarillion. She didn't like listening. She well, fell asleep. I mean, she falls asleep at all the books I read to her, which is the point. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, she was kind of like, Daddy, this is boring. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> I'm trying to listen. <laughs> Stop talking to me. Uh, but uh, but no, I'm glad that you that you read it. I. I like it. I think it's cool. It's one of those things that has uh, shaped me more than I've realized. And so like, as I reread or as I kind of go come back to it, I'm surprised at all of the ways like my views on power have been shaped by Lord of the Rings and my, Mm -hmm. my views on um, nobility and, and like, what it might mean to to be loyal or to care for for family or friends kind of comes from uh, the characters and, and the sense of beauty and profundity that's in Lord of the Rings. Like my entire understanding of redemption comes from Lord of the Rings. Mm. Without any without any uh, hesitation, do I say that? Like, yeah, it comes from the Bible, but like, but ultimately, it comes from the Bible for Tolkien too. So, like, right. you know, like like my entire the entire way I understand what it might mean to repent, you know, comes from Boromir. Right. Where, where, you know, in the, not, not only in the midst of, of guilt, like Boromir is, is, is immediately struck by, uh, and, and Sean Bean does a good job of this in the film, but like, it's really comes across in the book where Boromir is just struck immediately by, by the, by, just how despicable his action was mm-hmm. and and you know kind of calls out and openly weeps and begs for forgiveness and then puts it into action you know and then and then immediately like uh, immediately goes to to fulfill his mission or his job or or goes to protect and preserve and tries to make up for it and yeah. and then and then the way the entire company forgives him you know and then ev- and then he's forgiven like he's He's, he's because of that. It, it's not, it's not that he's forgiven immediately. He's forgiven because of his repentance and, and, uh, and, and like, that's just very striking. It's very powerful. Yeah. And that he, that he knows, um, that he knows that his action is despicable and that he knows that repentance is required is I think evidence of, um, of his nobility in the first place. Like there, there is an argument to be made out of Boromir that um, making, making a real effort to shape and form people to, to seek good and to recognize good and to, and to always be doing good means that when you don't do good, you know it. And, yes. and that he's able to turn on a dime and say, Oh no. And then make up for it. Like that's, that's that's kind of the goal in terms of Christianity is to to be so attuned to the mind of Christ that when you don't when you are not in line with it you will recognize it and you immediately try to make it right. Right, right, 
and and I think you're completely right. And so to have Boromir um, be presented in that way, and and to have uh, really, I mean, Boromir's case is is the is the most clear case. But like every character is that way, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I think we said this months ago on a podcast. It was mentioned like one of the things that I think Tolkien does very well at is, uh, and this seems this is going to sound kind of kind of silly, but but I don't think it's that silly is he's really good at writing uh, uh, men. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, like, like, oh, great, Ethan. <laughs> a white man wrote a male character. Yeah, but like, right. he's, he's got a particular moral vision for men mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. that he's able to write well. You know, he's able to, to write male characters that cry and kiss one another and, and hold hands and forgive and repent and, and speak tenderly to each other and to vulnerable people like like he's able to cast a vision for what it might mean to be a man whatever that means mm-hmm. um that that is not um uh, a common vision that we see in literature uh, yeah. particularly fantasy literature which is yeah. which is often really misogynistic and kind of well um, you know and uh, i just what was that? I, I said, I said, I said, um, cause I was going to start a new sentence, but what was I going to say with that sentence? Oh, and it's really clear. Like the villains have, you know why they're villains and it's, um, their actions are decried as, as toxic and bad and terrible actions. Like, I mean, like Melkor in the Silmarillion, like actively his toxicness spreads throughout all the rest of the history of middle earth until things will be entirely reshaped at the end and it's clear that like his fear of other people and his jealousy and his striving for power and all these things that we see in other people and that we know is toxic in other people it's like clearly toxic in the Silmarillion like and when Saruman chooses to like search after the rings for himself because he wants power and he's seeking power it's clearly evil and I just think that um there's a real benefit to being able to name evil as evil and part of the problem in our times is um because so many things that have been evil have been called good in the past um and because there are things that are evil from one perspective and good in another perspective and all this kind of stuff, we've lost our, our ability to name evil for what it is. And it's just kind of refreshing to be able to read a book and be like, yep, I know, I know who is doing something wrong in this book. And I know that they could change their ways and, and repent and be different. Uh, but until they don't, their actions are still toxic all the way through. Right. Right. And I think that's good. I think, uh, uh, my my kind of final word on this is I, I think back to our mini episodes on the Bible and on, you know, we talked in one of them on like living biblically and, and you know, kind of all this stuff. And what, what does that mean? I think that this is, uh, I think Lord of the Rings and, and the Silmarillion and just the work that Tolkien produces is interesting to me because uh, I, I, I very clearly see um, – uh, a, a vision of reality that is informed by the moral vision of like the New Testament. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so like I, I go, you know, are, uh, is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, living biblically? You, you could almost say yes. Like, 
you know, because of the way Tolkien has understood the moral vision and, and of, of the whole thing, like his, his main characters kind of live in a way uh, that, that is gentle and promotes, um, you know, it, it, Aragorn is powerful precisely because he, his power is the power to be with, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not because, not because he commands, but, but because he, and, and, and in part because he protects, but because he protects with people, you know, he, he's, he's with people and is alongside of people and doesn't understand himself to be an island. Right. You know, and, and, and that's what the, the solidarity is what makes Aragorn powerful. And it's the same thing with Frodo too. Like Frodo, Frodo is powerful in a totally different way than Sauron is powerful. Right. Um, and, and part of what makes Frodo powerful, part of what make, gives Frodo the ability to resist the ring for so long is in part his kind of the power of his character, but in an, like, like of, his, of his sense of morality and purpose. But it's also that he is with Sam. Right, yeah. You know, he is in community and that's what makes him powerful. He's, they're, they're a body. You know, perhaps that's another way of saying the fellowship. They're a body, you know, the body of Christ. It all comes full circle. <laughs> it does. It does. Yeah. There's a lot to work with. I feel like more churches could stand to uh, put C.S. Lewis down for a year and take yes. a talk for a little bit. Not that I don't love Clive, but we got to work on it. There's, there's a lot of stuff in C.S. Lewis and I'm like, you, but there's a reason why the conservatives love him so much and we got to work on it. <laughs> That's right. We've got to chip it away. Well, we'll have to do a mini episode on C.S. Lewis sometime just to make up. Uh, I'll have to read stuff I actually like by C.S. Lewis other than Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Oh, God. Talk about Eustace and, and redemption. And... That's the oh, only right. thing. I, I, I stand by that. That's the only book that stood the test of time. <laughs> yeah. Everything else is silly. <laughs> yeah. Or, like, or, or more simplistic than you want it to be. Oh, Eustace. Right. Well, this was this was good. It's always yeah. good about things that aren't just like straight up in your face dealing with church people. Do you want to for a mini episode? Yes, friends. This has been another mini episode of What the Hell Is a Pastor. I'm Spanked Treebach, and this is the Duke. And we will see you next time. I'm the Duke? Yeah. You're oh, the Duke I thought you'd been saying dude this whole I, time. I have, I have. But <laughs> now you're the Duke. I got promoted. I got promoted. <laughs> it's actually uh it's a character in Avatar, the last airbender. This is Smeller B and the Duke. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, I love it. I love it. It's Chet's uh, it's Chet's posse in season one. <laughs> oh man, it has been I need to go back and rewatch that. It's been so long. That should be another mini episode we talk about. You should rewatch Avatar. We should talk about how just like breathtakingly perfect Avatar The Last Airbender is. Yeah. Maybe I'll do that during quarantine. Perfect. Perfect. All righty, friend. Ian, I'll talk to you later and goodbye, Joe. Okay. Bye. Bye.